Greetings, rare ones, and welcome to the Rare Birds Emerging Markets Podcast with me, your host, Joanne A. Hamilton. I created this podcast because I was curious to learn about the startup ecosystems in developing countries. The Rare Birds Emerging Markets Podcast is where you will hear me have unique conversations with early stage startup founders, ecosystem builders, innovators, and investors from across emerging markets. It is an opportunity for all of us operating in these countries to learn, share, and exchange experiences beyond our borders. Although complex and varied, there are more similarities than differences in the narratives. If you're new, welcome. Rare ones come here to gain fresh perspective and insights into what is happening on the ground from the people who are creating shifts and driving the action. It is where they can connect through stories which are distinctive, honest, and relatable. Thanks for listening in, and I hope at the end, you feel compelled to join our growing global community of rare ones. Greetings, rare ones, and welcome back to the Rare Birds Emerging Markets podcast with me, your host, Joanne A. Hamilton. And we are still on Series 9, Education and Adoption Blockchain in Africa, Episode 184 is where we are right now. I hope you guys enjoyed the previous episode, 183, with Peter Oluwashina the three layers of blockchain education. So today I have the pleasure and honor of introducing you to Pascal Tsama IV from Cameroon. And the topic that you're going to hear us discuss today is education when building a blockchain startup. Here's what you need to know about this conversation. We never talk about the tech. It's strictly about education, education in terms of the startup as well as the user, or what Pascal calls a two-way or bi-directional exchange in building the startup. So let me tell you a little bit about our latest rare one. Okay, so Pascal is the CEO of Sockabit. You may hear him refer to the company as Kanza in this conversation. Please don't be confused. It's the same thing, all right? So who is Pascal? He's an expert in the respective fields of telecommunications, decentralized computing and software development with over nine years of experience in designing, optimizing, and operating complex multi-million dollar digital systems, okay? So with Sockabit, he says, we are in the business of simplifying the blockchain and cryptocurrency ecosystems for the African-focused next generation data driven market. Okay, I have all of Pascal de Pascal's details in the show notes as always, and you can find out more about him there as well as on the website. What are you going to hear in today's conversation? Okay, as always, we begin with getting to know him and we end with lessons learned. In between, however, there's a lot. Okay, so it's Pascal talks about his career, how we got to where he is now, the various startups that he's involved with, the conversation, however, focuses primarily on the peer-to-peer neobank that he's building, which is Succubit. Uh, we talk a bit about neobanks. So if you're not familiar with neobanks, you're going to learn a little bit about them, and then you can go off and do some more exploration. 
Um, we go into this two-way exchange that Pascal discusses, and he just shares his experiences of building a startup. So in this conversation, you, you will hear the perspective from a founder building for the user and how he was able to engage the user and how he continues to engage the user basically using a WhatsApp group. So um, yeah, it's, it's, really, it's a really uh, great approach. And I think it's something that you guys will enjoy. And also we talk about his vision. And then at the end, we talk a little bit about um, French speaking Africa lagging behind in terms of like the startup ecosystem, in terms of investment and whatnot. So I thought as he was from Cameroon, you guys would want to hear a Cameroonian's perspective on funding and, and all of that stuff. So overall, good conversation. I hope you delight in it as much as I did. And thank you for listening in. And as always, I will see you guys at the end. All right, rare ones, bye for now. Hello, Pascal, and welcome to the Rearbirds podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Joanne. It's a real pleasure to have you here. So welcome to the family. Everybody that comes on the show is a member of our family. So you are now officially a rare one. Oh, that's great. Thank you very much. <laughs> great, great. So Pascal, before we jump into the topic that we're going to discuss today, which is the importance of education when building a blockchain startup, please tell us who is Pascal? Perfect. Um, so um, I'm Pascal Summer. I'm originally from uh, Cameroon. Cameroon is um, country uh, is basically a neighbor with Nigeria. Okay. Um, it's a French speaking, predominantly French speaking country, um, but about 20% of the population is um, um, English. And my mom happened to be from the English side of Cameroon and my dad from the French side of Cameroon. So I'm, I'm kind of like a perfect Cameroonian. Um, is is that due to the colonial period? There was a part that was British and a yeah. part. Okay. So okay. It's, it's, it's um, mainly due to the colonization and the territories that were associated with the different colonies. Mm. And um, um, the English, um, English parts of Cameroon um, just make up 20%, pretty much is um, two provinces um, that make up uh, most of the English section, but there in total there are ten provinces, and the remaining eight are um, French, um, French oriented. Mm. But uh, Cameroon now it's it's a very mixed um, country. Um, it's a very so so just in general, Cameroon is very very diverse. We have almost three hundred different tribes, and we have several layers of sub tribes and almost 200 languages. It's a very diverse environment. And, and uh, that, it, it, it goes to, so, so uh, they refer to Cameroon as Africa in miniature. And, mm. and it's mainly because of that. The weather is diverse. Um, the the um, landscape is diverse as well. Um, you can experience the deserts in the north, and you can experience the grasslands in the south, and the tropics in the west and the east. So it's it's a very diverse place and um, very interesting culture. But um, 
So I, um, I spent about 13 years in Cameroon. Okay. Um, and then my family and uh, I migrated to the U.S. And I went straight into high school, into the educational system in the U.S., uh, kind of like secondary school um, in terms of, uh, I guess, the African way of education. Mm, yeah. and, uh, I wasn't really certain on what formation or what career path I wanted to take. Um, however, I was very interested into technology because I just left um, an environment that was uh, kind of limited in technology and then migrated into an environment that strive um, 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 by technology. So right off the back, I developed a very strong interest in uh, programming languages at the time. Um, it was both kind of like functional interest as well as like entertainment. I got into playing online games and trying to create online games. So I started kind of like creating my formation as a technologist or someone in the, in the technology um, sector. And uh, going into college, I decided to follow the career path of uh, engineer, specifically an electrical engineer. Um, and uh, thankfully the program at the time, uh, which I did at the Georgia Tech um, University in, in Atlanta, mm -hmm. it was kind of like half electrical engineering and half computer engineering. So I got to like um, experience some of the software uh, computer networking um, experience, mm -hmm. which was really good for me because um, that kind of like created the foundation for everything else I did. And while at college, I actually did some research projects. I was involved in two research projects, one of which was in the 5G space, where we were basically building uh, an RFID tag that was passive. And it basically communicated in 5G frequencies. And I also participated in another research project that was building uh, ultra capacitor as a means for powering uh, electric vehicle. Mm. And that actually got posted um, in, in an IEEE conference and got some recognition. So that was kind of like my first achievement in the technology space. And from then on, went to work for AT&T, uh, which is one of the top um, telecom um, companies in the United States and in the world. And uh, also got a chance to work for Sprint, now T-Mobile, mm -hmm. and uh, IBM as well. And between all this time, I was also involved in startups. Right. So my startup life kind of kicked off at the same time with my corporate life, which is quite interesting because um, most people, I think, would choose one path, right? Mm. But um, I understood very early that you need to develop certain skills to be able to excel in the startup world, right? And for that reason, I decided, you know what? I'm going to venture into things which I want to do and at the same time, go through the typical path of working for a big company, having impact in a big company, 
um, going through the challenges of a big company and then transferring those know that, that knowledge into my startup, right? Which I think is, is quite brilliant and uh, it worked out pretty well for me. It's uh, wise as well, it's wise because I think too many people silo themselves in the beginning of their career. So it was really wise of you to open yourself up and recognize that you needed different talents and skills to thrive. Yes, yes. So, I mean, it took some sacrifice, you know, you have to sacrifice some time because you have your nine to five and after nine to five, you have your five to nine. Yeah. So um, I just had to make that adjustment. And uh, um, so, my startup life kind of grew in parallel with my corporate life um, as my responsibilities grew bigger and bigger my achievements in the startup um, world also grew bigger and bigger and right. uh, today i find myself with three startups mm. uh, one of which is um, in uh, it's a joint venture in partnership with comcast and uh, um, it's focused on the social impact. Basically, we're building a data strategy to facilitate um, philanthropy money to black non-for-profits in the United States. Wow, uh, interesting. Yeah. So you yeah. mentioned you mentioned three. Can you can you tell us the three startups that you have? And you just mentioned one and and like their names and what they do. Yeah. So the first one, like I mentioned, is called Manergy um, Inc. It's in uh, partnership with uh, Comcast and NBC Universal. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, it goes after this issue of trying to funnel um, donations to Black um, non-for-profit organizations. Okay. So out of like $72 billion or so in an average, that is distributed to, to, to kind of like community-based organizations, only about 7% of it makes its way to minority organizations. So there's a big problem there. And the problem was basically a relationship problem. Mm. Uh, within the Black non-for-profit communities, we don't have a, enough mediators with big institutions like um, the Bill Gates Foundation or um, any of the big, big philanthropic um, 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 organizations in the world that donate a lot of money. So basically what we're trying to do is create a digital space through data where we can share information about um, how the black philanthropy uh, um, um, space is represented today. And that information now can find its way to those organizations that distribute funds and now they have enough information, they have a story that they can use and kind of like a, a channel for them to donate to organizations that they probably wouldn't have heard of, right? So that's kind of what we're doing with that startup. It's in its early stages, we're building the product, we're working closely with uh, Comcast and they're really Great. excited about the product and uh, so are we. That's and, an exciting uh, yeah. initiative. It is, it is. Uh, the second startup, it's kind of like, it's not really a startup, it's more of a consulting company. And uh, it's, we basically um, 
do um, government consulting. Um, right now, we're working on a project with uh, the University of Washington. Okay. And we're basically building a platform to facilitate um, um, contingency management for basically treatments for alcohol abuse and drug abuse. So mm. it's kind of like a total different space from the first startup. And uh, but it's quite interesting because over there we're getting to learn how to work for government bodies and um, yeah. how they set their goals. Uh, how do you um, basically produce right in, in those types of environment? And it's really a lot of transferable skill sets that we're picking up from there. Okay. And uh, the last startup is kind of like my biggest baby is Kanza. Uh, Kanza is basically a peer-to-peer new bank built on um, crypto mm -hmm. and using an existing network of money market players across sub-Saharan Africa to basically facilitate financial services to the general public in that region. So yeah. um, it's it's kind of like my biggest baby. I'm actually the CEO of Kanza. Mm -hmm. The other two startups that I mentioned, I play more of like a support role. But in Kanzer, I'm leading that project um, fully. And uh, it's, it's really exciting for me. And, and I, I think maybe by now you've noticed a lot of the projects I work on have some type of social impact um, um, flavor to it. I'm very Absolutely. good at uh, changing people's lives or facilitating issues or solving problems that affect um, the general public. and. Uh, that's that's i guess that's a good summary of myself i can go the third one you mentioned which is you said it's i knew it as i thought it was another name i thought it was sucky, yeah suck so a bit suck a bit with the sulky bit okay and how we ended up with cancer cancer yes so, please do um, we started with sulky bit and which sulky actually mean means market in the hausa language hausa uh, mm. is kind of like a popular language spoken among a lot of the uh, uh, northern Afri uh, African um, um, countries within mm -hmm. sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. um, it's as also associated with um, um, the Islamic region of the continent. Mm -hmm. And uh, it stands for marketplace. And okay. at the time, basically, we were building APIs to facilitate access to blockchains for fintechs in the region, in sub-Saharan Africa. So we're kind of like building more of a back-end product, a product which, um, let's say, remittance um, service providers can leverage. Yeah. To um, basically do the same type of service they do now, but on a faster network, on a reliable network, on a cheaper network. And uh, um, we discovered that there's, the, there's actually a bigger need on the customer-facing side right now as opposed to the um, back end or infrastructure um, um, side of things in, in the fintech space um, in Africa. And we decided to kind of like roll out this product that is going to leverage our APIs to address um, more customer facing problems, right? And essentially that's what Kanzer, can, that's, that's where Kanzer came from. Kenza actually stands for change in the Hausa language. Okay. And uh, uh, 
change. So, yeah. So, Kenza is basically uh, a peer-to-peer neobank. And I think what makes Kenza unique is we try not to recreate the wheel, right? Okay. We started with the question, um, there's a huge um, population of unbanked people across the continent, and it's no news to anyone. Everyone is aware of the unbanked population narrative. Yes. But how do these people actually go about their daily lives without a bank account or without some type of mobile um, banking platform? Uh, how do they still, you know, purchase goods, purchase, uh, uh, um, get services, send money to their loved ones? And we basically started with our families, uh, family members. We started interviewing them, and uh, it triggered into them referring us to other people. And we started to notice a trend. We started to notice that people basically operate. There's already a kind of like a invisible financial system, right? That exists among people in this region. And it's kind of like an untold story, but it's probably the oldest story ever. And probably explains why this huge population is not in a rush to get a bank account, or they're not in a rush to jump on some online platform because things are functional for them right now. Um, they, it's, it's a very cash intensive economy. Uh, it's going to be a cash economy for a long time, even though there's still the digital um, transition happening. Um, we discovered that people basically move money, right? People, it's a very kind of like manual um, tight network of um, trusted people that do financial services for each other. Mm -hmm. And when we looked across the, the, the whole region, we noticed a specific group that plays a huge role. And um, they are called, um, I guess they have multiple um, terms depending on what country and <laughs> what side of the region um, you find yourself. But I call them local currency exchange agents. Okay. And they are actually not um, just a sub-Saharan African thing. It's actually no. global. It's, it's all over the world you find these people. Yeah. And these are the trusted, these are the trust bearers in every community, exactly. in every society. Yeah. The whole world. Exactly. Emerging markets, third world countries have these. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. so it's kind of like a secondary market where you can exchange your fiat assets from one currency to another. And if you think of uh, remittance, if you think of people traveling back home, if you think of businesses that are operating in the region, they have a very wild, uh, wide uh, uh, range of clientels. And they are very successful at what they do and, and they, 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 they've made quite a lot of money from it. And they've been functioning very well until few problems came up. There's the devaluation of their local currencies that has really impacted um, them because they, they hold a lot of their assets in cash, mm -hmm. either in the banks or physically. And as their currency devaluates, they basically suffer losses and they have to adjust to that. Mm -hmm. And it's basically created this spike of interest in cryptocurrency. So a lot of them are 
looking at cryptocurrency as a good alternative to keep their reserves because crypto is trending upwards as uh, fiat currencies are, are trending down. Right. Uh, so our product is just kind of like, again, we're not creating anything new. We're just facilitating an existing market opportunity by providing a tool that is going to leverage these same local currency exchange agents to onboard um, people into the in, in, into using cryptocurrency to basically hold their reserves in an asset that doesn't devaluate and, and result to losses. So that's that's pretty much what cancer is is uh, going after. Right, and there's a lot that you just said that I want to unpack. But before we oh, yeah. unpack that, in initially you said that Kanza is a neo bank. For our audience who are not familiar with the term, can you tell us what is a neo bank and what role do you believe these banks have to play in emerging economies in 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 throughout the world and specifically in sub-Saharan Africa? Yeah, so neo banks are kind of like um, financial providers that do not operate like the typical bank. Okay. Uh, in most instances, they are small. In most instances, they are decentralized. That means there isn't any one party that um, dictates how the bank should operate. Um, they and they work in. Um, they basically work in a different type of uh, model. They are more community oriented. Mm -hmm. And because they're community oriented, they address issues that the daily person faces, right? And they, they don't kind of address the same issues that a major bank um, would be after. Um, and they all leverage, I think majority of them leverage technology to operate as a new bank. So um, the, the term neobank itself can be used across different types of solutions. But I think what I mentioned are like the typical attributes that they have. They are small. They go after problems um, which communities face. And uh, they are decentralized. They, 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 are, they don't have like a central governance um, that dictates what should happen um, right. uh, most of the time. And uh, it's just kind of like a new flavor of banking yeah. that is a lot more personal and a lot more practical. Yeah. And these banks tend to be digital and they favor those who are excluded. Exactly. Yeah. They are designed to address the problems that have been overlooked. Mm. Um, and uh, the, the biggest of those problems is the um, um, bank population. Actually, I, I want to stop using the word the word on bank, I would okay. use the word on the surf population because just the banking is not the only problem, right? If you give them bank accounts, there are different types of issues. There's the loaning. That's a people good point. To loans, people don't have access to other types of financial services. So yeah. I would address them as the on the surf yeah. uh, population. Um, yeah. And uh, so the new banks basically go after those those type of problems and the biggest of which is this on the surf um, um, population across sub-Saharan Africa, across um, Southeast Asia or the Middle East mm -hmm. that do not have access to traditional financial services. Um, so a lot of the new banks are positioned to address your problems as well as also compete in the same market as the bigger banks, but right. with a different 
um, approach to their offerings. Uh, uh, maybe they pay a lot of attention to their interest rates, trying to make sure that they are not very fee. They don't. They don't. Um, um, their customers don't endure a lot of fees, or they are kind of like streamlining a service that traditionally would take so much time and so much resources to making it more um, nimble and, and seamless for the cons for the customer. Yeah, and I'm, I'm learning that neo the, the term neobank is, is quite broad because there are mobile companies that are acting as neobanks. And then you have yes. then you have some of the larger well-known banks that are creating branches or subsidiaries that are considered neobanks. So yeah. I feel like there's so much happening in the neobank or digital bank or whatever you want to call it. Space. Oh yes, yeah. I would probably like a boss word. Okay, okay. It's a it's, it's a boss word, and uh, the financial sector is so it's complex. vast and complex. Yeah, and mm. so huge that it's very hard to group things in one bucket. Um, but it's easy to 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 kind of identify new banks. Um, because they would have those attributes which I mentioned, um, which is they're, they're community oriented, they're operating on a digital space, and they are um, trying to change the whole experience of banking. Yeah, and I think what we're going to see more of is major industry players having their own neobanks. So like a massive agricultural company is going to have its own neobank company focused on agro. You know, and then like a health company is going to have their own neo bank focused on health. You see what I mean? Like, I think you're going to yes. have, you're going to have more of that too. Oh, you're right. I think banking, you know, what's interesting is banking has always been small. Mm. It's of recent that we have like the global banking system, the currency system, and all of these sort of financial institutions that make up banking today. But if you go back thousands of years, there wasn't any type of one central uh, authority or group of organizations that controlled how the finances of the world uh, were managed. Mm. So in those periods of time, banking was small. Banking was community oriented. Banking was peer to peer. And I think now it kind of like transitioned into centralized uh, um, banking or centralized financial services and financial services management. And we've gone through a lot of ups and downs. And then now we're transitioning back to smaller, we're transitioning back to like smaller financial services, kind of like going back to where we started, right? <laughs> Which is peer to peer, community focus, um, um, kind of like narrowing the scope to addressing issues that are attainable as opposed to like, you know, trying to um, um, be spread globally and, and uh, still have the same performance. So you're right, banking is becoming um, like, I, I say it's becoming flat. And by flat, I mean, just think of the numbers of ways you can transfer money to someone today. You can yeah. use Cash App, you can use Zelle, you can use PayPal. I can go on and on and on. Yeah. And you can use crypto too. 
Absolutely. Yeah, you can so, use crypto. Yeah, and you can use, you know, thousands of cryptos. So banking is super flat now. For one type of service, you have almost like uh, 10 options, right? And yeah. as it's getting flat, it's also getting smaller, right? Now, now you have um, organizations that are focused on um, addressing specific community needs, right? If it's access to loans or if it's remittance, basically the traffic is migrating from companies like Western Union to um, smaller smaller groups, right? I like to use this example of like the African churches. Like yeah. the African churches actually have this network of remittance, which they do where like if you are a church that happens to have a, a branch in the US, your um, church members can actually send money um, through the church. Yeah. Deposit uh, what you want to send on in, in uh, let's say the, a church branch in the US and that church branch would communicate with the church bank branch in Nigeria and release the equivalent of that money to whosoever you're trying to send it to. So I think that's, we're migrating from like the Western Union way to like using churches to transfer money, right? Yeah. So yeah, financial services are becoming smaller. And I think by them becoming smaller, they, they would become better. However, I think both need to exist. We need the huge financial systems to keep the global industries and, and, and the global economy going. And we also need the smallest financial services to solve problems and solve them really well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, going back to what you were saying earlier, the problem that you are solving, okay? So we have a clear understanding of the problem that you're solving. You're essentially, like you said, facilitating an existing uh, some uh, uh, infrastructure that's already in place, but just updating it, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So to the part of education, it sounds like you've taken an approach whereby you've gone in and you've identified that there is a problem, but rather than trying to create something new, you've observed, you've, you've, you've imbibed all of, all of the knowledge and you see what's going on. And now you are solving that problem, which is, as you said, is due to local currency uh, devaluation and so on and so forth. So you've yeah. educated yourself so that you can really understand the problem. But in turn, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just saying yes. <laughs> yeah, which is important. But in turn, you're also educating them. And that's become a big part of, of your startup as you move forward. So can you speak more to the education part? Like you educate, it's like, seems like it's a two-way process. Cause I know you mentioned you have everyone in a WhatsApp group and, yes. and so on. So can you tell us more about how that's working? So, um, just, I mean, right off the back for a lot of um, startups that are looking at venturing in the developing world, it's very important to step in there with an open mind mm. and to kind of like just start off by disregarding what you know, right? Because a lot of what you know doesn't translate to what they know. A lot of mm. what you experience don't translate to what they experience. Um, so you kind of have to walk in there like you came from Mars or something. Like, <laughs> okay. And once that's kind of like the first step. 
and that's that's kind of like the practice which we did with cancer and once you um are in the scene speak with the people um which you're trying to solve a problem for with a very open mind right yeah and uh, you would just that's that's what we did and we just learned a lot there's a lot of assumptions we made that were incorrect the mm. first big assumption we made is we thought we were talking to people that probably made like 20 something thousand a year okay and we learned we were talking to millionaires mm. and I'm talking about millionaires in the naira currency millionaires in the dollar us dollar mm. yeah yeah i'm not surprised so, I'm not surprised. There's a lot of there are a lot of these people that are millionaires, but we'd never know. They don't appear the way we know millionaires to appear, I guess. Exactly. And we made a lot of assumptions about them and so we kind of had to like open our ears and just listen to them talk. And by them talking, we started studying more about them and then we started talking to a lot of them. And then now we started seeing trends, right? And uh, going back to what you said, yes, it's a two-way exchange. You need to learn mm -hmm. to solve your problem, and they need to learn from you to understand your solution. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, it, it can never be a one-way at any moment. It's always a bi-directional exchange, and uh, it's really good because you get to literally vet out your solution on the fly in a conversational manner. Uh, your solution might be addressing things which they actually don't care about. Yeah. Um, and also you would learn certain things about them, them that they are not even aware of. Uh, we found a lot of um, agents, um, current um, local currency exchange agents that were trying to avoid the devaluation by using crypto were buying a lot of Bitcoin. And Bitcoin, as you know, is probably not the most, um, it's profitable, but mm -hmm. business is a risk, right? Mm -hmm. To keep mm -hmm. your, your, your reserves in Bitcoin with the volatility, the price going up and down, depending on whatsoever factor we discovered that they weren't even aware of stable tokens. Right, stable coin, okay. Mm. And once we introduced, we, introduced, we told them, so what if you held your tokens in a stable crypto, right? It's a crypto that is pegged to a fiat currency, a more fiat, stable fiat currency like the US dollar. Um, is that something you will use for your business? And they said, oh yeah, I will use that right now. I would sell my crypto and hold it in, in fiat. Mm. So um, it's very, it was really a two-way learning experience. And then it's continuous, right? Because there's this challenge with Sub-Saharan Africa where the population, so, so the, typical, the average person doesn't know what the solution is to their problems. They don't know what the best solution is. And for you as the problem solver, you don't know what the best solution is either. So it's kind of like continuous. You have to like put things in front of them. They have to play with it. 
you have to observe their reactions towards it and then get feedback from them or make informed um, observations on does it really solve their problem or not? And uh, there's kind of like no format <laughs> to doing it, but uh, I would say what we did is not number one, we created a WhatsApp group. Right. Uh, I was gonna ask you that. That was gonna be the next question. How yeah. how do we do it? <laughs> so, um, so right now we're very blessed, you know, with the digital era, you don't mm. need there. You don't need to, there's literally no boundary between you and the sub-Saharan African market. And I think this point is actually very important for a lot of startups that are not from those regions, from the developing yeah. world. And there's a lot of that. Yeah. In today's age, all of these markets are open to you. Yeah. But these are the things which you can do to actually gain access and have traction. Number one, you need to think locally. You need to find people that share the same passion with you on the issues you're trying to solve. And you need to kind of like uh, onboard those people into your project, right? And you can find them through multiple ways. Like Twitter is a very good place to find fans, actually. Okay. Uh, create a Twitter um, page for your project, um, search different tags, um, send people messages. Um, and uh, I think I got about three people just from Twitter that were really passionate about what uh, we were building with cancer and they were willing to just work with us, right? If it was um, getting to introduce us to more um, local currency traders or getting to just promote our product, they were up for doing it. So um, definitely you need to work with local talent, right? Okay. Because that would facilitate your access on the ground. Uh, and secondly, you need to take advantage of technology. There's WhatsApp. Um, WhatsApp is kind of like the biggest hub, um, specifically in Sub-Saharan Africa. A lot of people use WhatsApp because the data is um, um, consumed by WhatsApp, is subsidized um, by WhatsApp. Yeah. So they don't get charged a lot for using that application as well as Facebook. Okay. So it's easy to reach out to people on WhatsApp. They are already accustomed to like having groups on WhatsApp, doing business on WhatsApp. Um, so using WhatsApp is a great channel. Uh, you can also use social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram, but WhatsApp has a bigger, bigger pool. Telegram appears to be quite big as well. Telegram, yeah, Telegram is, is, is really good. Uh, and I think if you are maybe in the B2C space, Telegram is going to be very good. Um, yeah. If you're in maybe in the B2B space, you, you have to think of like who are the business owners that actually um, generate a, a lot of revenue in the region, right? And a lot of them tend to be older. It's a people that have had businesses for 30 years, 40 years, it's very unlikely you'll find them on Telegram. Um, Got it. Okay. Very, 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 very likely you'll find them on WhatsApp. Mm. Um, but if you're kind of like in the B2C space and you're going after the, the young population, you have like a, a, more of a, a customer-facing face, tool or product you're building, 
Telegram is something they're definitely accustomed to. And uh, they're actually very technology savvy um, in, in, in this region because they tend to even use technology a lot more than we do. If you look at the average time which um, someone from um, Sub-Saharan Africa or like Nigeria spends on Instagram and Facebook and WhatsApp and TikTok compared to the average time we on the West um, um, spend is almost similar or even more in some instances. So yeah. um, they are on these platforms. You, you can reach out to them. So I would say those are the two biggest things we did. We use Twitter to basically find people that are passionate about what we're building. And we did so by just searching keywords, right? It could be Western Union or hate Western Union or um, love crypto or crypto Nigeria. And mm. you will find all these people and you can message them, right? Some of them would actually be vocal about their frustrations and post it on Twitter or post it on Facebook. And you can start a conversation from it. And they get excited when you actually do so. Um, because they kind of, um, I think they, they get some type of hope that somebody is listening to their, to their um, cries and their worries and is trying to solve that problem. And then now they'll be interest, interested to find out how are you trying to solve this problem, right? So that conversation is very important and uh, um, making sure you build a good relationship with, with those people is key for you to have like local presence. And uh, so that's very important. And the second thing is just leveraging social media platforms, popular um, platforms, which they are accustomed to. Right. And then those two things that you do will then help to build even more trust as you go along, right? Yes, they will. Because um, at the end of the day, uh, marketing is quite complex in, in this part of the world. Okay. Um, just having a poster or having some TV ad doesn't translate to people buying your goods. Right. Word of mouth is probably the biggest marketing engine in sub-Saharan Africa today. Okay. And any good business that position itself to solve a problem in a way that once their user experience their solution, they're prone to tell their family members or their friends about it. And their friends are prone to use that product because it's coming from, because the recommendation is coming from a trusted party. That is the right strategy to go about in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. I think word of mouth is way more in, impactful than any marketing campaign yeah which means in your solution you really have to make sure your solution removes all the friction that they face right your solution has to be impactful enough for them to patronize it okay okay now you mentioned marketing and i think that's really important because there's a difference between educating your customer and marketing to your customer, right? And sometimes oh, yes. there's a thin line between those two, no? Yes. Um, 
So it, I think the, the, the best strategy is to start from the education angle. Yeah. Um, it's very important. Else, what would you be marketing? Okay. It's very hard. You'll literally be doing trial, trial and error. Yeah. Because you, you'll be marketing something which you don't have enough informed information about. And marketing is, is actually very complex in sub-Saharan Africa. Like, yeah, I'm glad you said that. That's important it, to know. It's, you can, so, so you have to understand, like, you have to understand there's already a lot of diversity, right? So if you were trying to do a commercial, you have to think of how is that commercial going to appeal to people that are of a specific tribe? Okay. or people that are of a specific religious belief or people that are of a specific demographics the dynamics of the demographics are so huge that you can't just rely on typical um, marketing okay however by taking the educational angle you can study enough about these differences and you can leverage these differences in your solution Right. Um, that's kind of the best the best way to go about it. I, I think it, it, I, I would say education is way bigger than marketing. Yeah. Because if you can understand your um, customer or your target customer enough to solve his problem, he's most likely going to do the same thing to someone he cares about. He's going to educate that person on using that same solution so that they can um, be in a better place. And it's just going to naturally, it's a domino effect that would uh, take place naturally. And we actually experienced that with our WhatsApp group. Okay. We started with seven traders, and today we have 108 traders on our WhatsApp group. And a, a lot of them just came from um, people adding their bodies. They're like, hey, these guys are building cancer. It's, it's a cool product. Yeah. Uh, we're all going to be agents. Uh, we're gonna make money out of this. It's a business venture. Join this WhatsApp group, right? And they join, and they just kept adding people, and we've grown to where we are right now. So um, I think that is the best uh, organic growth that is based off word of mouth. I think as a startup, if you notice that trend anywhere in the world, it's a very very good signal, and especially in sub-Saharan Africa. Okay, good. So you are essentially building with your customer, you're building with your target market. So what, like, I mean, you don't have to tell us, to tell us specifically, but sort of how is this done in your WhatsApp group? Are you saying, are you like putting something in there and saying, hey, would you use this? Or are you, are you giving them a lot of information and seeing how they respond? Or are exactly. you saying like, okay, okay, got it. We try not to be um, biased in our, in our approach to how do we collect information. Okay. We try not to approach them from a yes or no, or um, what do you think? Mm. So, so what we did is we um, release features to them. We um, say, hey, we've created this feature. It's accessible via USSD. This is the number. And for those that don't know what USSD is, USSD is basically a messaging um, technology similar to SMS, but it's a lot cheaper 
and uh, it uses a different interface for communication and it's wildly yes. accessible through the region and use. Mm -hmm. So we used USSD as a channel to like release features and see how they interacted with it, right? And we started by um, releasing a feature that would basically um, retrieve the life crisis of Bitcoin and the NARA. And we just kind of like posted that on, on the WhatsApp group and observe. Okay. And we, we noticed it wasn't getting a lot of traction, but then the price of Bitcoin started going up and all of a sudden now they were using the tool. <laughs> so okay. um, we kind of like learned that like, okay, it's a need based feature. They're not going to want that information until they see the market moving, right? And when the market moves, they need that information and they need it ASAP. Matter of fact, some of the agents were telling us that the our um, life quotes were not accurate. They were in the market rates. They were about 5% more, right? And then we learned that, okay, we're pulling data from this API source. This API source is doing XYZ type of calculations, right? maybe we need to factor in these other additional calculations to make the price look a lot more um, like the market value they'll be trading in a peer-to-peer -peer manner. So um, I think observing natural observation is very um, um, important uh, because it there's nothing fictional, right? Uh, the only mistake there is if you make the wrong um, assumption of an observation okay. but i think um, a lot of the time is very clear like in the scenario i mentioned we put out the product we were referencing prices that were high um they, they get they use it as a need based product if they if they don't need the price they're not going to seek for it however when they seek for the price they want to see the price that actually reflects um, how um, prices that they would do actual trades with, right? They don't want to see something from a website that uh, is, is, is either higher than what they're accustomed to. So um, I think for any technology companies, a good way to learn is to, by interaction, put out the product, put okay. out the MVP, see how your community in, uh, um, reacts to it. And it doesn't even have to be a uh, hundred people. If you have five people, that, that's still a good starting point. See how all five of them um, interact. See if there's a trend among their interaction with the tool, right? And uh, that's that's essentially the, the strategy we took. Wonderful. But what I want to know now is, so you're have you launched yet or are you near launch? Are you almost done with the final? Yeah. Products. So we're building the, the application, uh, 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 the first version of the application is going to be in the Google um, Play Store. Uh, nice. We're aiming to release the first version sometime this month or early next month. Um, Great. Once that is clear, we're going to communicate it with our community. Okay. Um, but as much as we're rushing to build um, the mobile app, we also understand the fundamentals and the key factors which we 
kind of spoke about on this um, um, uh, in this conversation. Yeah, it's going to be a continuous learning process. Yes, as much as you have to rush to market, you have to understand that you're you have to create a channel where you ship fast and you learn, ship fast and you learn, and and that's essentially what what we're, we're, we're expecting. Our first product is not going, the first version of our app is not going to be the final. We are very, we're very prepared for multiple iterations. Um, we have actually been proactive about it. And um, so, but I think sometime next month, uh, we'll be having our first set of users. We already have 108 agents that uh, waiting to use the application. Actually, every almost every week they ask us when is the application gonna be ready. So um, we already have like a consumer market waiting for our product, and uh, we're really excited to uh, de deliver the first version of it. That's very exciting. And in terms of the education, it never ends, right? So the education right. continues. It just continues. Yeah. So as you yeah. As they as they come to you, for example, in the WhatsApp group, I imagine that's that's going to perhaps become bigger and become even more robust with time as you get more people on board, and they might um, express some new challenges, and then you can solve that as well, right? So yeah. it's just a continuous loop of of education and learning oh, as yeah. for the lifetime of the product, I guess. Yes, and actually, for all new members, I think we had a few members that joined. Um, a few days ago and when they joined they asked what is cancer and what are you guys trying to so they asked a lot of the w's right mm. and um, i was actually thinking a few days ago okay I, I think it's best for us to just use whatsapp api and, and the whatsapp chatbot to basically go through the educational section of what we're trying to do where you could be texting what is cancer to a phone number and the phone number um, returns a message with the uh, description of what cancer is, the problem cancer is trying to resolve, potentially a video, it returns a video, it probably asks, um, was this information helpful? If you select no, then it, it you know returns a video, you can play the video and uh, get to learn more about cancer. So those those are kind of like educational strategies that I'm, I'm, I'm going to be implementing in preparation to the mobile app coming. And it's going to be very, very valuable. If you think about it, like I mentioned, a lot of traffic is already on WhatsApp. So by you automating the whole educational process is really, really good. It streamlines your um, resources for education and uh, it kind of prepares your community on on, uh, on how to use how to best leverage your solution. So I think that's that's probably another <laughs> big um, advice out there for anyone um, building a product targeting sub-Saharan Africa. You need to you like you need to understand how would you scale your education or your education strategy. And mm. uh, to us right now, we, we're thinking automation, right? Like you mentioned, once we have a lot more users, it becomes quite complex, right? We don't have the luxury to, um, 
to operate multiple WhatsApp groups with different communities and answer all of the W's in all of those communities. However, we can build a chatbot. They can send those um, uh, questions to a specific number and that number would retrieve the information they need to educate them on the product. Fantastic. That's probably something I should have uh, uh, kept to myself, but I'll be generous and share with everyone. <laughs> well, I am most grateful. Thank you. We are most grateful. Thank you. <laughs> so you have shared so much with us. What I want to know now is, I mean, I think your entire team, you guys are outside of the continent at the moment, right? You're spread across yes. North America. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So where do you see this going like five ten years from now do you think you guys have moved back to the continent do you think it's going to expand into other parts of the continent like what what's the big vision if you could if you could be generous and share it with us please yeah so so it's definitely going to expand to other parts of the continent okay um and uh, a lot of those so so to start off with i i going back to the first topic of the of this discussion I mentioned about I have a francophone and anglophone like an English and French yes. orientation. so I kind of have an advantage when you look at francophone Africa where there's been very few technology driven initiatives yeah uh, given technology globally is very English in nature. yes Yes. So the very massive opportunity in Francophone Africa, of which I'll be starting a campaign this year. Fantastic. Uh, it's needed. To, it's needed. Yes. We're going to expand into, into those um, um, untapped um, um, areas and uh, start to build relationships, right? With, with us, it's all about relationships. Local leads are way more important than your solution. Yeah. Because local leads are going to keep the flat up when you are, you know, like they're, they're going to keep your project going um, beyond your capacities. So local relationships are very key and we think that is how we're going to grow. Um, actually, we don't think that's how we're growing today and that's how we're going to grow. and. To add more context to that, um, that means traveling to these areas, leveraging our internal network and finding people in these uh, new fields that are willing to work with us and they are passionate about the problem we're trying to solve and then empowering those people. Once you empower them, you kind of give them the ammunition to go and be independent and carry your mission single-handedly. Yeah. So that's what we're doing in Nigeria at a very narrow, in a very like um, a micro level. We're doing that in the city of Ibadan. About okay. ninety percent of the traders in our in our community right now are from Ibadan. We've okay. not even tapped into Lagos. Ibadan is, I believe, the third largest city in Nigeria, about um, three million people. Okay. And. Um, um, Lagos is the largest with about 9 million people and followed by Kanu okay. uh, with about 3 million people. So our goal is to expand 
to Lagos and Kano, where okay. we've not had any um, activities. Um, and then also kickstart our expansion into Francophone Africa, really working with um, market leads. And a lot of these market leads could be fintechs, right? They're fintechs, they're already people on the ground. We, we believe every problem we're trying to solve, there's somebody trying to solve that same problem. Sure. But they are probably using a different solution, a different approach. Uh, and what we, we are trying to do is we're trying to empower those people because by empowering them, we're building this network of kind of like self-functional um, problem solvers, right? That all they needed was just the right tools. Mm. So that's, that's going to be our, our plan. And you mentioned as far as us being remote. Yeah. So there's actually a very interesting trend right now. You can, you can run a company across the ocean um, in today's age, and it works perfectly. Okay. Um, the remote culture is, uh, it exists. It's not just because of the COVID-19 and the pandemic. The remote culture was is, is basically um, inevitable. It was coming. Technology enables the remote culture to exist. And uh, I think um, we don't face any challenges running our business from different parts of the world. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in Dallas, Texas, in the United States. Uh, one of my partners is in California. Mm. And another uh, one of my partners is in Sydney, Australia. Okay. Uh, we travel every year. We try to make at least four trips. Um, we each try to make four, four trips um, to um, the region. Uh, that is not going to change. We still need local presence is very important, especially from a motivational standpoint. When you have those local leads and you get to meet them in person and you get to interact with them, it's very impactful and very motivating for them so um yeah that's that's basically our approach to expansion and uh, the activities which we're going to be covering carrying on um, in the next few um, quarters that's brilliant that's a big vision you know I, I was thinking about a few things as you were speaking so the first thing is that one of your unfair advantages <laughs> is that you you are between anglo and franco that's that's brilliant that's your advantage right unfair advantage because yeah. not everybody else is going to have that and that's really yeah. good because then you know like you said told us earlier cameroon borders nigeria so you have that english you said ibadan and kanu you have those English speaking parts, but then you still got a foot in Cameroon, which is French speaking. So you're yes. able to bridge to, to bridge a gap there. And by gap, I'm referring to specifically the fact that there isn't a lot of adoption of the tech in Francophone. I hate saying Francophone, but let's just say what it is, right? Francophone speaking yeah. Africa. Um, yes. There is very little investment going into, into Francophone speaking Africa. One of the... Um, individuals I interviewed on in this series is Omar, who's from Senegal, and he's a blockchain developer. And that the conversation I had with him was specifically about the fact that it's so hard to adopt the tech when everything is in English. And yep, so, yeah. yeah, he does a lot of work translating 
from French to English. Uh, there's Iman, who's also a guest on this podcast in this series, who talks about the same issue around Arabic because she's from Egypt. So there's a yeah. massive um, deficit in terms of like a language barrier. I think when we when we think of tech and issues around tech, it's often like, oh, access to tech. But we're talking about just limited printed educational materials in the, in different languages. Everything is is in English. Oh yes. Everything is yes. in English. So there's a there are a lot of people being excluded. And then yeah. in addition to that, you have a lot of investment that's not going into to this part of the continent. Uh, right now there are these reports out, you may have read them. Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, Egypt. That's where all the money is going. Yes. For, yeah. uh, for various reasons, right? But what is yeah. I, I I research and I read a lot about this stuff. And like, what's your take on why outside of language, we know language is, is a big part, but someone that is in both worlds, what is your view yeah. on why why this situation is the way it is? Why isn't the tech being highly adopted? Why aren't investments coming in? I've heard people say it's because the market is small. I've heard people say it's because, you know, polit politics and leadership and like, what's your, what's your position on all of it outside of language? Outside of language, um, it's very hard for me to separate language because mm. language is the is actually the barrier. Oh, so it <laughs> is language. It is language. language. Okay. So, so I mean, I, I guess we can go maybe a level higher than that, and it, it all comes down to the colonies, right? I'm very big on history, mm. and I think understanding history explains the present and sure. can project the future. Yeah. And I think um, there's probably a, a reason why all of the ex-English colonies are performing a lot better Absolutely. technology-wise Absolutely. Uh, as opposed to the French, um, the ex-French colonies. So the challenges of the typical um, ex-English colony and the challenges of the typical ex-French colonies are, are, are slightly different. Um, you have um, basically different, um, I would say different approach to governance development and, and execution. And if you kind of look at the trends, the English speaking nations are uh, evolving faster, not just in technology, uh, in multiple aspects of life. And uh, um, it's, it's just situational. I think they're both going through their different transitions. Um, it's just unfair for, for, for the, the French um, um, side of the continent because first they have to deal with the language bar um, barrier. And technology today is very associated with English. So you need to learn how to speak English, right? And especially when it comes to interacting with people out of the continent, English yeah. is going to be that channel. Yeah. And then understanding English is the first part. Um, the second part is building the right relationships. It's so easy for somebody in Nigeria or Kenya or Rwanda to build relationships with um, people in the US, right? And in England or um, even in the Middle East, right? Because there's that commonality in the language. But if you think of somebody from 
um, the Democratic Republic of Congo or someone from Togo, mm -hmm. what does that look like? What, what does it look like when they send someone a, a LinkedIn message in French, right? Mm -hmm. And that person doesn't understand French. Mm -hmm. Does that person have the patience to copy that and post it on Google Translator and do the same back to them? It's very unlikely. So yeah. the, 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 the language by itself is a massive um, uh, um, challenge. Secondly, there's also the situation to which both sides find themselves, right? The English speaking um, um, ex-colonies kind of have an advantage um, 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 because they, I guess, in terms of like governance development, they are ahead, right? They have sort out a lot of the issues which are kind of, um, um, they've addressed a lot of major challenges and I think it's, it's, it's helping them with propelling in, in the technology space. But in the French side, there's, there's still a lot of work to do. Um, not to say they're, they're, they're not um, performing, they're performing, but it's going to be at their own space and at their own situations they're dealing with, right? Um, that's, that's, the, that's my take on it. It's very hard to separate, it's very hard to look at the issue without the language being part of it, right? And actually, yeah. let's remove language, the culture, it's more of the culture. Okay. And the, 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 the reason why I mentioned someone in the English side of the continent can quickly um, create relationships with um, someone in the, in the English speaking developed world is because of that culture. They have that culture that was um, transcended um, during the, I guess, colonial era. Yes. But in the French speaking side, it's quite a hard transition, right? And because of that, they're going to most likely look at resources in France, right? Or other yes. French speaking part of the world, which are probably not the dominant leaders in the technology space. Right, right. Because I think when it comes to France, we think about a lot of things, but we don't associate it with, un even though entrepreneurship is a French word, right? <laughs> we don't associate it with uh, like technology and business. That's yeah. what we associate with the Anglo world who are dominant in those fields. So yeah. there's that element of, as well, because we always hear and learn about how difficult it is to do business in France and that the mentality around business in France is not the same as in, yeah. you know, that. so the English speaking countries. So there's that, like you said, culture. So it's a language and it's culture. Yeah, but, but, but what, what remains this, what, so, so what is interesting here is the typical person in um, Togo or the uh, uh, Cote d'Ivoire um, or any of these French-speaking sub-Saharan African nations face the same challenges like the typical person in the English um, nations in the region. So solving the problem in one um, section actually means it can translate to the other section. And as much as language is a big problem, it's not an impossible um, um, challenge to overcome. Um, you're, 
as, as a startup or, or a solution provider, you need to create the channel for the communications to happen, right? You need to make sure that if you have to leverage translation APIs, leverage them. Again, it's going back to one of the points I mentioned, local leads. Local leads are your answer to everything. You will find one person that speaks English and French, and that one person is going to be your uh, uh, microphone or it's gonna be your loudspeaker. So, right. Um, it all goes back to local leads, right? And you can build relationships with a French speaking local lead um, but that relationship is, is going to entail work and work means you're going to have to learn translation tools. You're going to have to learn the fundamentals of, of that language. You're going to have to put in the work and the effort and they will do the same. If they're, if they're passionate in what you're doing, they will do the same to meet halfway. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, um, I don't think it's foreign because these same countries or um, at some point they, they, they were trading among each other. They weren't even speaking English and French. They were speaking different local languages. Their own languages, yeah. They still trading, and they are still trading among each other. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, wherever there's a transaction and a need, I don't think communication is a big problem. Yeah. Uh, but it's just going to entail a lot more effort. You, you, you need to create that channel and, and, and the environment for some form of communication to happen. Yeah, but like you said earlier, th this is a huge opportunity, particularly for someone like yourself and your yeah. team and your startup, because you, you've seen, you see this. So now you can provide solutions for this. And I mean, it's, it's bigger than French speaking Africa. It's also places like Angola and Mozambique, yeah. you yeah. know, where, and uh, Equatorial Guinea, you know, where people are speaking Spanish, <laughs> Portuguese and, and so on. So I think um, there's a lot of opportunity depending on your approach and how you see it. Some may may look at countries like Nigeria and Kenya and, and they just rush to it. Yeah, that's where they want to be. But then you have other people that are like, actually, well, no, I want to go to Cameroon or I want to go to Gabon. I don't, you know, people, people have different, people see opportunities in different ways. Yeah. So. Yeah, huge, huge um, untapped markets. Um, yeah. Democratic Republic of Congo is one of them. Yeah. Um, I think they have above 100 million people, uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, or close to 100 million people. It's another huge market, um, which a lot of, it doesn't get a lot of attention. Yeah, I think it gets a lot of attention, but it's negative. It's war. Yeah, it gets a lot of attention, <laughs> but you know? it, and and the, the crazy thing is, um, the always you cannot go off what is projected. You need to experience to understand. If we had just learned about the currency, um, local currency exchange agents by reading articles, and watching videos would have made those assumptions that they are not shrewd business people. They just do currency exchange. Mm. They probably make about $20,000 if they are lucky a year. Mm. They don't understand financial systems. They don't use technology. They don't know what crypto would have made some, 
would have made like a, a long list of assumptions. But by really creating an intimate relationship with them, we understand them way better enough to, to, to know um, how we can um, basically impact them and how they can impact us. Yeah, and I love your approach. I love your approach. And I, so I like that you've taken this approach. I mean, and I always say that anyone who's building a startup in an emerging market, I mean, in this instance, it's blockchain, aren't, they aren't just entrepreneurs, you know, they're also educators oh, yes. and they're ambassadors and they're, you know, cultural protectors. Because when you decide to build a startup in these countries, you have to constantly educate everybody else about that oh, yeah. country. Education goes all the way to regulators. It goes from yeah from your grandma at the rural area all the way <laughs> yeah. to regulators. And, yeah. and it's it's you, you have to do it in a very friendly manner and a very well you have to make yourself welcoming. Um, you you really do because I think that's actually a very, very big factor. You need to be welcoming. Mm. You can come on the scene and start throwing big terms mm. that they've never heard before. Yeah, the language. Gonna, the language is important. Start, yeah, they're going to shy away from exposing their vulnerabilities to you. You need to come down to their level, come down to the user level. If you're trying to understand um, how people uh, go about um, getting access to clean water. Stay with, spend a day with those people. Don't even tell them that's what you're trying to learn. Just observe them, right? You you kind of like have to bring yourself down to, to those levels and uh, you would learn a lot. Yeah, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I've learned. So at the end of every podcast, um, one of the things I like to do is ask our newest family members, what lessons have you learned from your entrepreneurial journey that you would like to share with us? You've shared a lot, but if there's one thing <laughs> that you could end with, what would that be? I would say people are bigger than technology. Um, and always kind of keeping that in mind is going to take your startup or your, your business um, further. People are bigger than technology. Absolutely. That was great. Perfect ending. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Joanna. Okay. Until next time. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. This is an original Rare Birds HQ creation. It was produced by Rare Birds HQ and is meant for informational purposes only. If you enjoyed today's show, let me know by writing a review and do share it with your friends. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe to receive the weekly podcast newsletters, weekly news, and of course, more podcasts. Do visit the website at www.rarebirdshq.com. Until next time, rare ones, bye for now.